I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, hello there again, my friend, and welcome to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast, this monthly look into what's streaming in movies, music, and television. Man, I got to tell you, you look better every time I see you here, my friend. Thanks for coming back and hanging out with me again. I am Clint Davis. I talk movies and television here on the show. In just a little bit, we'll be hearing from my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, who dives into the world of music every month on the program. We hope you guys enjoy the show. If you do... Uh, please follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis. I'm on Twitter at the same handle as well. And make sure you reach out to us. Uh, hit me up with an email at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. And you can hit Andy at sedlackjournal at gmail.com. He is sedlack, S-E-D-L-A-K, journal at gmail.com. Always good to talk with you guys every month here. Uh, I'm sitting in my closet in Columbus, Ohio. That's where I record my part of the show. Andy's up in Cleveland, um, and we'll be getting to him in just a little bit. But uh, let me, uh, real quick, uh, before we get rolling, tell you that I got a couple new videos up on the Overdue Review YouTube channel. I told you last month I've been try- I want to, this year, do more of those videos. Um, typically, I've been like very slow. Like I'll do like two of them a year, maybe. Uh, so they are very rare when I get the time to do them, but I want to, I'm trying to make more time to do them and I've already done two in the last month. So I did a review of 1955's Marty, the uh, Ernest Borgnine movie that won best picture in 1956. Uh, you can see my full thoughts on the movie there. I thought it was tremendous. One of the best, best picture winners I've ever watched uh, and inspired me to make a video about it. So just to tell people that is such a gorgeous movie. Just watch my review. I use a lot of clips in it and you'll see how beautiful the cinematography, uh, in that film was. And it was made by a first time film director, a guy who went from television to film, uh, and it won Best Picture. It's only 90 minutes long. It's still, I think, the shortest Best Picture winner of all time. And uh, it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, too. So really just a, a, an amazing movie with a lot of accolades that I don't think enough people talk about as one of the great Best Picture winners ever. The other review I did is a lengthy, in-depth dive into Cowboy Bebop, the movie. So if you're into anime at all, if you liked Cowboy Bebop, the series, uh, or if you've seen the movie, give my review a watch, and I wonder if you agree with me or disagree with me on my thoughts on that movie. It was a little bit more of a mixed review on that one, but you can check both of those out at the Overdue Review YouTube channel. Please subscribe while you're there as well. 
my friend. Let me go ahead and uh, light my stogie up here before I get things going. I always like to do that, get the closet all nice and smoky. Get my Zippo out. All right, watched a lot of movies in this last month, so this is going to be a movie-heavy episode as we are now. I'm recording this on the eve of the Oscars, so I have not seen the Oscars yet. They're going to air tomorrow night, so I don't know what's going to win, uh, but I'm going to give you my thoughts on the movies that I've seen. I watched several more of the Best Picture nominees since the last time we talked, and I'm going to give you my takes on uh, those as we go on here in the show. But first off, I know music isn't my deal. That's Andy's, uh, that's Andy's deal, but I wanted to real quick pay my respects to somebody we lost just uh, in this last month. I'm telling you, man, we are only a month into the year 2020, but we have already lost some stunning celebrities uh, in the entertainment business. Obviously, we lost a sports icon and an Oscar winner in Kobe Bryant. That was a huge tragedy. I think everyone in the world felt that one, even if you never watched basketball in your life. And we lost one of the all-time great movie stars ever in Kirk Douglas. And I'm telling you, if you've never gotten into Kirk Douglas, I, I didn't get into him until like the last couple years, really. And man, movies like Ace in the Hole and uh, Seven Days in May and especially Paths of Glory, the Stanley Kubrick movie. He is so good and stoic in that movie. And Kubrick tends to get a lot of big performances out of his actors. But uh, Douglas is so dialed down in that movie. I thought it was incredible. I wonder what was going on on the set. This is a great performance. It's a great movie. Uh, But we lost both of those guys, but I wanted to take a minute to remember someone else that died in the first days of this decade. And like I said, I'm not the music guy here on the show, but I thought that this one was just too monumental in my own life for me not to mention. And I'm talking about Rush drummer Neil Peart, who died on January 7th after a private battle with cancer that nobody even knew was going on until it was too late. If you asked a room of 20 guitar players to name their three favorite guitar players ever, I'm guessing that you would have a few guys that overlapped, But my bet is that the list would probably be wildly different from one another, depending on what kind of genre they were into, if they preferred kind of showy guitar playing, or if they liked more of a rhythm guitar kind of thing. You'd get a lot of different answers if you ask guitar players who their favorite guitar players are. There's not like a universal like one answer, who's the greatest guitar player ever. But I think if you asked a room of 20 drummers to name their three favorite drummers, I would be willing to bet that Neil Peart would show up on at least... 15 of those lists, he he might show up on all 20 of them, to be honest with you, regardless of what genre the players specialize in. If you ask jazz drummers, rock drummers, um, if you ask like hip-hop drummers, I'm, I am betting you that all of them have listened to Neil Peart, heard him, seen him, and uh, in some way have admired his ability because the guy was just a powerhouse. <laughs> such a technical showcase in the world of rock music where it had typically been more about kind of theatrics 
and power, you know what I mean? You think of guys like Keith Moon, you think of guys like John Bonham in the early days, Ginger Baker. Uh, in the early days of rock, those were the big showy drummers. I mean, Keith Moon was exploding his drums. He was just doing fills every five seconds. Uh, John Bonham, just those really tight grooves, those big, loud bass drum thumps, uh, those immaculate fills and stuff like that. Uh, and Ginger Baker was just completely nuts. But, and you think of like Buddy Rich, who was just all over the place, so kinetic and crazy. Um, and, you know, most most pretty much everybody likes Buddy Rich. But Neil Peart comes along and he kind of combines both of those worlds. But he's such a laid back, like the guy's face all the time. He just looked like he was made out of stone while he was playing. But he was all over the place. His arms are moving all over the place. His feet are doing things that his hands have no idea what they're doing. Um, and it's just, it, it's wonderful to listen to him and to watch him play the drums. Hurt was this meticulous craftsman behind the drum set. He was always picking the perfect part. That was so creative, you'd blow your own brain up trying to imagine it yourself when given a guitar and bass part. But I gotta say, you know, Pert rarely ever stole the spotlight from his bandmates in Rush, Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee, which is rare for a guy who could hammer parts like this. He just didn't step up and take the spotlight very often. In addition to being Rush's drummer for more than 40 years, Neil Peart also became this, the band's primary songwriter, especially writing lyrics for most of their songs uh, throughout their long, long run in rock and roll. That's another rarity among drummers. Drummers are not typically thought of as lyricists and certainly not poets, right? His lyrics, you know, they might have been cheesy as all hell, and sometimes they really were, and they were very obvious at times, but... They could also be brilliant and truthful, which was the case in a song like 1984's Between the Wheels, which also has one of my favorite drum parts he ever recorded. But listen to this. this is, these are lyrics written by Neil Peart, and obviously he's playing that drum part as well. I've played drums myself since I was about 13 years old, and I will never forget the name Neil Peart coming up at the time uh, when I was first getting into the instrument, when older people would tell me kind of who to study, who to watch, you know, who are the best drummers. I always heard Neil Peart's name come up, and I remember sitting down with a CD copy of Exit Stage Left, the live record that uh, Rush did years ago, and listening to his work on YYZ on repeat and just wanting to do that, just trying to emulate that.
I also bought the DVD set uh, that was called a work in progress uh, that just it, this DVD set was so nerdy. All it was was four hours of Neil Peart sitting alone in a studio talking drums and playing Rush songs. Just him sitting there playing his drum parts. You'd watch him. He'd break it down like in notations on the screen uh, and he would play the parts real slowly to teach other people kind of how to do what he did, which I think again just shows how gracious the guy was and how willing he was to share his love of what he did with other people and not acting like, you know what, I'm so great that nobody could ever emulate what I do, even though nobody really could. Uh, but he wanted to give you a glimpse into it and make you feel like you could be Neil Pert if you wanted to be. Uh, the lessons didn't work in my case, but they were a hell of a lot of fun to watch. So rest in peace to Neil Pert. Uh, definitely one of rock's gentle giants and one of the most gifted musicians on any instrument that I have ever heard in popular music. He and those weird Russian hats that he always wore when he played will be greatly missed. Neil Peart, man, an absolute legend, a titan of rock and roll. And you saw kind of uh, those tributes pouring out. Just like with Kobe, you saw tributes to Neil Peart pouring out from musicians all over the place who were all kinds of genres, from metal to jazz to good old-fashioned rock and roll, um, and everywhere in between. Uh, and it was just, it was really cool to see how, how much he meant to a lot of people, even though he was kind of this anti-rock star. I mean, the guy, you know, didn't really do any interviews, and he had a lot of personal tragedy in his own life. I mean, his his wife and his daughter were killed in a car crash. Uh, more than a decade ago, and he wrote a book about getting on his motorcycle, basically, and riding all across North America. Uh, he was Canadian, and riding all across North America on his motorcycle, and he wrote this book about his, you know, journey that he was just trying to get his mind right, you know, after that huge loss. I mean, he basically had no one left at that point, and uh, he he put it down in that book. It was called Ghost Rider, and he wrote a song called Ghost Rider also, which is another great uh, Rush song and very personal to him. So just a, just a tremendous guy with a great legacy. And if you never got into Rush, uh, it's just it's a cool band, man. A lot of fun to listen to, and uh, really just powerhouse stuff. Just just good shit. All right, speaking of music, let's get into TV music. Now, this is more my avenue here on the show. The greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Let's get our 48th entry into the canon of the greatest TV show theme songs ever. And for this one, we're going to go with an animated series. If you grew up watching cartoons in the 1980s and into the early 1990s when I was watching a lot of cartoons you are definitely going to remember this theme song. I will guarantee it. And I apologize in advance for this song being stuck in your head all damn day because it is going to happen. For the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, we go back to 1983 when kids first met a clumsy detective who was part human and part cyborg. That's right. You know it. You love it. It is Inspector Gadget. And if you never saw this show, let me see if I can sum it up for you. Inspector Gadget followed the adventures of a guy named Inspector Gadget who liked to say wowzers all the time. That was his big exclamation. Wowzers. And he had a bunch of robotic gadgets built into his body that he could activate by saying, go, go, Gadget, 
copter or go-go gadget motorcycle or whatever, and his body would turn into whatever thing uh, he was doing, or his, his limbs would like turn into this, whatever it was that he needed at the time. He was pretty inept. I mean, the part was kind of like Maxwell Smart from Get Smart, and actually Inspector Gadget in the series was voiced by Don Adams, the same guy who played Maxwell Smart, so there were a lot of ties between those shows. So he was pretty inept, kind of stupid, uh, not very good at taking down criminals, but he had these great powers, and luckily he had behind-the-scenes help from his young niece Penny and their dog Brain, who were the real brains behind the operation. remember Inspector Gadget being kind of loaded with great style. He was, Inspector Gadget wore the kind of like old noir detective like trench coat kind of outfit and he had the hat on. It was like, it didn't feel 80s. If This show felt like it was the 1950s or 60s or something like that. And one of my favorite parts of Inspector Gadget was definitely inspired by James Bond. And that was when they would show the villain who was this guy named Dr. Claw, right? Great name for a villain, Dr. Claw. They would just show his arm, and he had this metal glove on and some spiky jewelry, and he'd be petting his cat. So you didn't see the guy's face. You would just, when they showed him, they would just like show him from behind. You would see him sitting in a chair, and you would just see his big metal arm, and you would see him uh, with his spiky jewelry on, and he'd be petting his cat and talking in this really low voice about we got to get Inspector Gadget. So Dr. Claw was really cool. I really remember that a lot from watching the show when I was a kid. But you would not, you know, see his face. So it was really, it was a cool, like, stylistic choice, I think. And definitely inspired, again, by uh, Blofeld from the James Bond movies. But I didn't know that at the time. I just thought that they made this up, and I thought it was really cool. But my absolute favorite part of Inspector Gadget was this theme song. The Inspector Gadget theme song was written by a guy named Shuki Levy. And this dude is one of the most prolific composers in the history of children's television. Allegedly. And I say allegedly because there was some investigation years ago that found that Levy may not have actually written all the theme songs that he supposed that he, you know, claimed he had that he was credited with, but maybe that he was hiring other people to ghostwrite them. You know, you've heard of ghostwriting. Uh, in in rap music or in books, you know, pretending that you wrote something but paying someone else to write it. So that was maybe what Levy was doing with his theme songs. But we, we don't know for sure. So I'm not sure about the Inspector Gadget theme song, but I'm going to give him the credit because he was credited with writing this song. But if you watched kids TV in the 80s or 90s, you probably remember Levy's work because he also was the composer for theme songs like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Rainbow Bright, that's another great TV theme song, Punky Brewster, and he did the theme song for the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. How about that? Another good one. But this was arguably his masterpiece, if you ask me. The series ran in first-run syndication for 86 episodes from 1983 to 1986, and that's crazy because that's before it ended before I was born, but I definitely remember this show still being on a lot when I was a kid. So it just has lived, it lived on for years after uh, that, and I was probably watching it in like 93, 94, 95, something like that, so almost 10 years 
after the show ended. But again, it ran from 83 to 86 in syndication. And uh, Inspector Gadget has been rebooted several times since then, including as a live-action Disney movie in 1999 with Matthew Broderick in the main role. But the original version is still beloved by any kids who watched it. And that opening theme will never get out of our heads. So that's why Inspector Gadget is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. All right, my friend, I told you I've been watching, spending a lot of time at the movies and watching movies in the last month, trying to catch up on the movies that are nominated for Best Picture before uh, the ceremony happens. So by the time you listen to this, I'm sure the Oscars probably will have already happened. So you know what won Best Picture. But that's not what it's all about. It's about seeing great movies. It's not about what the, the Academy picks as the best movie of the year, because more often than not, they are way wrong. I mean, they only really get it, in my opinion, get it right, like, once every five years, they'll get it really right that, man, that was the best movie of the year. Because it's just, it's hard to pick. And, and most of the time, what ends up happening is you get the movie that's the most agreeable, right? You get a movie like The King's Speech to win the Oscar, which, fine movie, enjoyable to watch, good acting all the way through, well-crafted. But was it a movie that really, like, changed your life and, like, blew you away or, you know made you think about things differently like the truly great movies do? No, it didn't. It was just one of those movies that was well made. It was fine. It was okay. And that sometimes is what happens with Best Picture. It just ends up going to the most okay movie of the year. And that's why you don't get movies like Citizen Kane winning Best Picture because it's just too daring. It's too challenging. And it's too uh, different from what voters have usually seen. Um, or you don't get a movie like a Pulp Fiction winning Best Picture. Instead, you get a movie like Forrest Gump winning Best Picture, which was the case in 1995. And those movies couldn't be more different. One couldn't be more safe, and one couldn't be uh, more out there and 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 daring. You know what I'm saying? So that's what happens sometimes with the Oscars. So I want to talk about the movie Joker here because I just watched Joker not that long ago, a couple weeks ago, and I've had some time to think about it. And Joker, I would put in there with the movies I just mentioned. Now, is it more daring than a movie like The King's Speech or than Forrest Gump? I would say it, it is because, I mean, it's R-rated. It has some, you know, dangerous elements in it. It's got a daring performance at the center of it given by Joaquin Phoenix. But I think Joker, when it was over... All I thought was that was a very okay movie. Like it was it's the kind of movie that I've seen everything that it does. I've already seen it before. I mean, even down to the character itself. I mean, how many times are we going to have an actor play Joker and do it like in this in in, a, in an intense way? You know what I'm saying? Like Heath Ledger already did that and then Jared Leto did it and now Joaquin Phoenix has done it. And people are acting like no one's ever done the part this way. And Joaquin Phoenix is a lock to win the Oscar. And he was good in it. I mean, he definitely gave it his all, but that's Joaquin Phoenix. He gives his all every time you see him in a movie. He always gives his all. I mean, you remember him in Gladiator all those years ago? He, You just wanted to choke the life out of that guy. He was such an asshole. And that's because Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor. I mean, when he played Johnny Cash, you really thought 
that he was Johnny Cash. I mean, this kid who kind of grew up in like a Hollywood family, you thought he was this legendary country star because he looked and sounded like him. He really embodied that role. So Joaquin Phoenix has done some amazing work. I really do think he's one of the best actors we have. But Joker is just one of those movies, top to bottom, that we've seen it all before. Martin Scorsese with The King of Comedy. Martin Scorsese with Taxi Driver. If you mix Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy, you kind of get Joker. I mean, that's really what you've got. And you mix it with The Dark Knight. You get what Joker is. So I've just, I've already seen all this stuff before. So it didn't feel different enough for me it didn't feel daring enough for me to be considered best picture and it certainly didn't feel good enough to me to be nominated for 11 oscars i mean what were they why 11 oscars the costume the costuming in the movie is fine the makeup in the movie is pretty damn good i'll give them the i'll give them the makeup but i mean basically it's clown makeup you know what i'm saying you've seen how to do the kind of runny makeup joker thing before and I didn't even mention Jack Nicholson when I was mentioning the great actors to play Joker because he did it really well too, just not in the like dark, intense way. He did it more in the kind of comic booky way, but he he did it great too. And Mark Hamill's done the hell out of the Joker part for years as a voice actor. So it's just one of those. It's so well worn. Why was this movie nominated for eleven Oscars? I just am not sure after seeing it myself. And it just feels like one of those movies. I don't want to go snobby on you. But Joker feels like one of those movies that people who haven't watched a lot of movies, who haven't watched a lot of like movies by serious filmmakers, you know what I'm saying? Maybe people who've watched the Marvel movies and commercial movies and stuff like that, but haven't spent a lot of time getting into like independent film or getting into foreign movies or getting into like the old movies of Martin Scorsese and stuff like that. Kind of like the auteur directors. It feels like the kind of movie that they would be like, man, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. It was like Donnie Darko. Remember when Donnie Darko was out and all the kids at school who were like kind of the dark, tragic, you know, art kids, they all thought that Donnie Darko was like the greatest movie ever made because it was like the first movie like that that they had ever seen that explored that kind of thing that had the crazy timeline, that had the big twist ending. It was, it was you know, broke down new doors for them in watching these kind of mind-expanding movies. But Donnie Darko wasn't the greatest movie ever made. I mean, now it rarely ever gets mentioned in any of those conversations, and I think that's what's going to happen with Joker when you fast-forward 10 years from now. I still think Dark Knight is a 10 times better movie than Joker was. Uh, Obviously, this movie's more of a character study, just getting into this character of Arthur, who ends up becoming Joker um, in kind of its own one-off story. And I, I think I applaud DC for making this movie, for producing it, because I think it, again, shows that comic book movie audiences have grown up in a big way and they want to watch R-rated comic book movies. I mean, look at Deadpool. The two Deadpool movies have done incredible, I mean, billion-dollar business. And then Joker comes along and makes a billion dollars too and just is breaking records at the box office for R-rated films. So it just shows you that you can do what Marvel's done, but you can do it in an adult way and it will make a ton of money still. Uh, But... Joker is a well-made movie. I'm not here to say that it's not a well-made movie, because it is. That, that's a reason why it's in these conversations, that it's that's nominated for any Oscars at all, because it wouldn't have been if it was a shitty movie. So it's a, it's a well-made movie. Todd Phillips, you know, did, I think he really got into it. I think he did a nice job paying homage to Martin Scorsese, those movies I mentioned before, especially The King of Comedy. There's just so much in this movie that feels like that one. But The King of Comedy was very original. 
And Robert De Niro in that movie is just stunning uh, in the kind of depths of of insanity that he gets to. Sandra Bernhardt was really good in that movie, too, if you've never seen it. So is Jerry Lewis. But anyway, Robert De Niro's even in Joker. And in this movie, he plays the host of the talk show that uh, the Arthur character is, like, obsessed with. He always dreams of being on this show and trying to find a way that he can be on this show and be a comedian and perform in front of his idol, which is Robert De Niro, the guy that hosts this late-night show in Gotham City. Uh, So, and in The King of Comedy, it was Robert De Niro playing a guy who was obsessed with a late-night comedy host played by Jerry Lewis and eventually ends up kidnapping the guy uh, and and trying to take over his life, basically, was the kind of the story there. So it's different, but it's very, very similar movie. But I just don't get the 11 Oscar nominations. I mean, 11 Oscar nominations is the kind of thing that you see for a movie like The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, or like Ben-Hur, you know what I'm saying? Or like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan, like true big studio epic kind of things that you just have never seen anything of that scope before and they just are magnets for all these Oscars. Whereas The Joker is basically kind of this one-man movie, really, about, you know, the lonely white guy. We've seen the story told a million times in dramas um, who turns into a psycho, basically. I mean, it's the it's Taxi Driver is pretty much the storyline here. So, uh, and it's got that gritty look, you know, that we that was kind of pioneered for comic book movies by uh, The Dark Knight and Batman Begins. But yeah, it's just Joker is the movie that I've seen. I've seen it all a hundred times before. So that's why I just, I think if it wins Best Picture, it's going to be one of those that is really disappointing. But honestly, I would not be surprised to see it win Best Picture because, again... A lot of times that award goes to the most okay movie of the year, and I think Joker was probably the most okay movie that I've seen so far in twenty from 2019. So it was just, it was okay. Everything was done fine. There were no big glaring mistakes, no bad performances, nothing that looked bad. Everything looked good. I got into its world. It felt like it was lived in. It felt real. Um, and I will give... Phillips a lot of credit for that and also for Joaquin Phoenix for going all the way but that's just his style I think if Joaquin Phoenix works with any director let alone the guy who directed The Hangover which is Todd Phillips's big movie before um, Joker I think he's going to give you that performance I think if I stepped in and I, I directed a movie with Joaquin Phoenix he'd still deliver a once-in-a-lifetime performance even though I have no clue what the hell I'm doing behind the camera um because he's just that kind of actor. He's just one of those guys that goes all the way every single time. He's like James Dean in that way. You know, I mean, you never saw a James Dean movie where he's not going for the throat because that's just what he does or a John Cazale or something like that. So Joker is out available uh, to watch at home now. If you like uh, character studies, if you like kind of a gritty drama then give it a watch because it is well made and uh, it does have a good performance from Joaquin Phoenix in it. He'll probably end up winning another Oscar for this one. But I just think it wasn't anything I haven't seen before. And there are movies that are nominated for Best Picture this year that are truly original. Um, truly, truly original movies. So uh, that's that's those are my thoughts on Joker. I wonder, what did you think about it? Were you really blown away by it? Because like I said, I think it just depends on what movies you've already seen. If you've never seen Taxi Driver... If you've never seen The King of Comedy, uh, if you, I mean, nobody hasn't seen The Dark Knight, but if you never saw that somehow, then I could see you being like, this is the, the most amazing 
powerhouse thing I've ever seen. Why has no one done this before? It's been done before, though, is the problem. So uh, that's the thing. And there are more original movies out there this year that are nominated for Best Picture, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But I, Joker, I put up there with kind of like Green Book or Driving Miss Daisy or Forrest Gump or The King's Speech. It's just, it was a fine movie. It was well made and it was okay, but it didn't do anything that I haven't seen before. So that's my thoughts on that. Well, okay, I, I think... I, I might understand that you did this to start a movement, to become a, a symbol. Come on, Murray. Do I look like the kind of clown that could start a movement? I killed those guys because they were awful. Everybody is awful these days. It's enough to make anyone crazy. Okay, so that's it. You're crazy. That's your defense for killing three young men? No. They couldn't carry a tune to save their lives. Oh, why is everybody so upset about these guys? If it was me dying on the sidewalk, you'd walk right over me. I pass you every day and you don't notice me. But these guys, what, because Thomas Wayne went cried about them on TV? All right, I'm going to take a break and toss things over to Andy Sedlak, the one and only. Up north, up by the lake, let's find out how things are going. Take it away, my friend. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, everybody. Good to chat with you again. My name is Andy Sedlak, and I am the music editor at the Stream Police Podcast. I listen, I search for context, and then we we chat about it. We address major trends, forgotten trends, and all the latest trends. We follow our id here on the show, you know, and, and I think... That's what makes it, honestly. Uh, No advertisers to answer to, no bosses, no investors, no mentors, uh, just two guys riding the wave, (laughs) wherever that takes us. Go ahead and do us a favor, if you wouldn't mind, and rate this show five stars. A review also goes a long way. It will help us stand out in that crowded podcast landscape. Like, and this is true, did you know that there is a show dedicated to both computer science and alpacas? Same show, computer science and alpacas. Like, that's the collective theme. 
We got to be better than that one, right? Well, tell the world we are. Do so by rating us and reviewing us wherever you get your podcast. Now let's get on with it. Yes, get on with it! Eminem just performed at the Oscars. And, you know, he has been releasing albums at a steady clip the past few years. And he also has a new record out now. It's called Music to be Murdered by. Here's a sample. But it's only the opening act. It's early. Don't overreact. There's something told me relax and just hope for the show to be packed. To want to hit the stage before they fill each row to the max. Because that'd be totally whacked. You can't murder a show. Nobody's at. But what if nobody shows? Panic mode. About to snap and go motherfucking wacko at any second. About to cancel the show just as fans below rush the entrance. Plan is a go direct shit. Cameras in all directions. The press is about to go ape shit. Bananas on all the networks. Commando with extra clips. I got ammo for all the hecklers. I'm on to the teeth. Another volume fall off the bed. Hit the ground and crawl to the dresser. Alcohol on my breath as I reach for the scope. I'm blacking out. I'm all out of meds with them benzodiazepines. That's Darkness, probably the finest tune on the album. Eminem has put out an album a year for like the past three years. And he's gotten the worst reviews of his career. Keep in mind, there was two years between the Marshall Mathers LP and the Eminem show. Another two between the Eminem show and Encore. Then starting in 2017, it went Revival, Kamikaze, and Music to be Murdered by. Bang, bang, bang. His albums, they don't stack up to earlier works. But then again, I'm not sure that they're supposed to. Really, I'm, I'm just, I'm unsure that they're supposed to. If Eminem is anything, he is self-aware, hyper self-aware. He knows he changed the game, starting with the Slim Shady LP in 1999. He has tangible proof. The reviews, the press coverage, the congressional hearings, the money. He saw the rappers who emerged in his wake. He saw all of those things. The arc, that arc, of his legacy is intact. He faded, and then he battled back in 2010, put out recovery, massive pop success. So so there's your comeback story. That box is checked. He's checked all of the boxes. And he's only in his 40s. So what do you do? Well, I think you show off. And that's why he's rattled off this string of releases. And and I think we need to keep in mind which phase of his career Eminem is in. He's done the prolific thing. He's done the game changer thing. He's been uh, down and out and written off as an addict. And then he came back and he proved himself all over again. Check, check, check. He's checked everything off. So now, 
He's showing off. He didn't even announce the last two albums. He just put them out there. Boom. Here's another one. Boom. Another. And I think we need to listen to them differently because I believe he's recording them differently. The mindset in which he's recording them is simply different than it was earlier in his career. Those early albums were like cinematic experiences. They were like watching movies. These albums, these records are more like basketball games. They're more like basketball games. He'll go on runs or he'll play like shit for a while, but but it's he's your team, so you'll root for him. He'll drain a three with a great line about drag. Sometimes he gets hot and spits a bunch of bars in a row. Other times, he's on the hook for like a stupid foul. Do we really need another gay joke? No, we don't. Bad. Foul. Bad play. Momentum stops. Filling with the venom and eliminate him. Other words, I'm enemy. I don't want to hurt him, but I did him in a fit of rage. I'm murdering again. Nobody will have been a fit of killing him. Jumping the fucking bodies in a lake. Obliterating everything is generator. And I get him. And I make anybody who wanted with the pin and frame. Don't nobody want it, but they're going to get it anyway. Because I'm beginning to feel like I'm mentally ill. I'm a killer. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him. Be the vanilla gorilla. You're bringing a killer within me. Out of me. You don't want to be the enemy of the demon who enemy. I'll be under receiving enemy. What stupidity it'd be? Every bit of me is the epitome of a spitter when I'm in the vicinity. Motherfucker, you better duck or you finna be dead the minute you're an enemy. 100% of you is a fifth of a percent of me. I'm motherfucking finish you, bitch. I'm available. You want to battle? I'm available. I'm blowing up like an inflatable. I'm undebatable. I'm unavoidable. I'm unevadable. I'm on the toilet wall. I got a trailer full of money and I'm paid for. I'm not afraid to pull them. Man, stop. These releases are too cerebral to be called mixtapes, but too tossed off to be taken seriously as like full albums. It's like, you know, they're honestly like mid-season NBA games. I mentioned the song Darkness, which samples Simon and Garfunkel. It is the best song on the album. Heavy on narrative. Marshall gets boring when he he tackles the same subjects again and again, himself being among them. He's so obsessed with himself, it's almost Trumpian. But the narrative-heavy darkness pushes him out of that comfort zone. He's making a genuine statement here about mental health and gun culture. It's kind of mesmerizing, actually. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be. I don't want to be alone in the darkness. I don't want to be alone in the darkness. I don't want to be alone in the darkness anymore. Here I am alone again. Can't get out of this hole I'm in. It's like the walls are closing in. You can't help me. No one can. I can feel these curtains closing. I go to open them. But something pulls them closed again. Darkness, Feels like I'm loathing in Las Vegas Haven't got the Vegas, why I'm so lost But I'd make you the small wager If I bet you I'll be in tomorrow's paper Who would the odds favor? I'm so much like my father You would think that I knew him I keep pacing this room Valium and chase it with booze One little taste it'll do Maybe I'll take it and snooze Then tear up the stage in a few If Eminem decides to do more of that He'll be fine And he'll get the glowing press that he clearly covets. Right now, he just wants them to marvel about how he can toss off a record. It's not going to happen. I still enjoy it, but that's not what music writers want. Give us an album's worth of darknesses, though, and he could cement himself up with, like, the Kanye. The Kanye's of the rap game. Kanye's never really released a bad album. You know, okay, we can argue about that. But no, like, there's never been just a disaster of a record. Eminem has. He practically intended to do it. 
But if he starts putting out an album's worth of songs like Darkness, he could be remembered alongside, like, Michelangelo. Dude, is that good? They said my last album, I sounded bitter. No, I sound like a spitter. Ninety-percenter, these hypocrites are trying to get rid of. But why would I get a chip on my shoulder? I was considered one time as the illest. Bitch, I'm still as fly as a zipper. True, I'd just get richer. But if it was ever all about Skrilla, then I would have quit her. Long motherfucking time ago. Bitch, shut the fuck up. I should go say that shit to Tech Nine or the Jigger. Nobody says shit about two chains as long as he's been here. Shit, no wonder you're mad now. I'm looking at them plaques, count them. I'm LL Cool J, bigger and deafer. That's how come I sound like four mil when I put out a bad album. Revival flop came back and I scared the crap out of For Rolling Stone stars, I get two and a half out of five. And I laugh out loud because that's what they gave bad back in the day, which actually made me not feel as bad now. Because if it happened to James, it can happen to Shady. They do the same shit to Brady. More people hate me than love me. This game will make you go crazy. But the go for B-R-O-K-E. I was the G, the O-A-T. Once I was played in rotation at every radio station. They said I'm lyrically amazing, but I have nothing to say. But then when I put out Revival and I Switching gears. I want to talk about Louis Jordan. That's right, Louis Jordan. I love Louis Jordan. Let me say it again. I love Louis Jordan. What's the use of getting sober when you're going to get drunk again? Old Sam done something fine. When he brought back good whiskey, beer, and wine. I love my whiskey and I love my gin. Every time you see me, I'm in my sin. Jordan was born in 1908. He passed away in 1975. That is a long time ago. That was during the disco era when he passed away. His heyday was in the 1930s and 1940s. I pay attention. You see these girls with these fine diamonds and fox furs and fine clothes? Well, Jack, they're looking for a husband. And you're listening to a man that knows. They ain't not They ain't fooling. And if you fool around with them, you're going to get yourself a school. If she saves your dough and won't go to a show, beware, brother, beware. And if she's easy to kiss and never resist, be careful. Beware, brother, be careful. Beware. And if you go for a walk and she just listens while you talk, she's trying to hook you. And if nobody's looking and she asks you to taste her cooking, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm going to make the case, and nobody asked me to do it, just please indulge me. I'm going to make the case that Louis Jordan was the first rock and roll star. Louis Jordan was the first rock and roll star. He came a generation before Elvis, a generation before Little Richard. Chuck Berry once said that his greatest influence was Louis Jordan. Here he is talking about it. When, when you were getting started, who did you, uh, who did you Here, here, who? I tell you, the main guy was Louis Jordan. Louis Jordan. Yeah, I wanted to sing like Nat Cole with lyrics like Louis Jordan. Jordan performed swing music. So hard they had to give it another name. What they started calling it was Jump Blues. But it was really the beginning of rock and roll. 
four of Jordan's singles sold a million copies. And an analysis of the Billboard charts concluded that Jordan was the most successful artist of what they called race records. That's what they called music by black artists in his era. Jordan also wrote or co-wrote a majority of his hits, a rarity in music at the time. And honestly, it's a rarity in R&B now. Is you, is or is you ain't my baby. Now here's where it starts to get interesting. Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley is generally recognized as the first rock and roll song generally. Sometimes folks will point to a song called Rocket 88 by Jackie Brinston. At any rate, Rock Around the Clock was released in 1954, Rocket 88 in 1951. Jordan predates them both by releasing a song called Saturday Night Fish Fry In 1949, we're going to listen to Rock Around the Clock first, and then we'll compare. Here we go. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat rides on. That was 1954, largely considered the first rock and roll song. Now, do you think this sounds familiar? Here's what Louis Jordan was doing in 1949. Now, if you've ever been down to New Orleans, then you can understand just what I mean. Now, all through the week, it's quiet as a mouse, but on Saturday night, they go from house to house. You don't have to pay the usual admission. If you're a cook or a waiter or a good musician So if you happen to be just passing by Stop in at the Saturday Night Fish Fry It was rocking It was rocking You never see that stuffing and shuffling Until the break of dawn That again, Louis Jordan Saturday Night Fish Fry It was rocking And that was released in 49, which, last time I checked, is prior to 1954. So if they sound similar and one of them came first, then which one can you say was the first rock and roll song? I say rock music officially began in 49, although it wasn't popularized until later. Remember what Chuck Berry said. The main guy was Louis Jordan. Louis Jordan. In order for Jordan to get his sound, he had to pare it way down. He had been playing swing music. That's music with a large band, 8, 9, 10, or a dozen members. But he started to thin out his band. He found a combo that worked with just five members. They became known as the Timpani Five. In other words, he formed a rock band. He'd been playing with lots of guys, 
pared it down to the size of a rock band, and the results speak for themselves. Now, Jordan did not write the song Saturday Night Fish Fry, but he rearranged it. He also added lyrics. Among the lyrics he added were in the chorus, where he used the term rocking. It, of course, was a euphemism for sex. I've looked around. I can't find another example of rocking being used in this context. It seems like this was the first time. The first time that someone describes something as rocking. The first time that you could rock. In order for Bill Haley to rock around the clock, Louis Jordan first had to rock at the fish fry. Stopping at the Saturday night fish fry. It was rocking. It was rocking. You never see that stopping and shuffling till the break of dawn. And by the way, a fish fry might sound tame. But put it into context, fish fry in the 1940s, well, events like that had a history of getting wild. Women, booze, music, fights would break out. People would be stabbed. (laughs) It was an altogether different affair than uh, the pleasant afternoon get-together you might be picturing. These things were rowdy. Now the folks was having the time of their life And Sam was jiving Jimmy's wife And over in the corner was a beat-up grand Being played by a big fat piano man Now some of the chicks wore expensive frocks Some of them had on bobby socks But everybody was nice and high At this particular Saturday night fish fry Once again, rock around the clock. And now, Louis Jordan's Saturday Night Fish Fry. Now I'll really drive it home. You ready? Bill Haley was a country artist who was turned on to recording kind of harder, tougher music later in his career. In fact, he was almost 30 by the time Rock Around the Clock was released. A lot of credit is given to his producer, a guy named Milt Gabler. Gabler, famous for producing, you guessed it, Louis Jordan in the 1940s. That's a bomb dropping. It was rockin'. Louis Jordan had crossover success but never became a household name. Still, he uh, influences legions of black artists with his style, and his black music became more acceptable to white audiences. It was those people who broke through and popularized the genre as a whole. Chuck Berry, Little Richard among them. And behind the scenes, Milt Gabler was applying... Jordan's style to subsequent recordings. Louis Jordan is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as he should be. He was a maniac, married five times, money troubles. He was in movies, toured constantly. He was a combustible guy. And a guy like that is the type of guy who throws everything into the pot and starts stirring. Louis Jordan, the real father of rock and roll. (laughs) 
crowd of women was screaming and jumping and yelling. The bottles was flying and the fish was smelling. And way up above all the noise they made, somebody holler, better get out of here, this is a raid. I didn't know we were breaking the law, but somebody reached over and hit me on the jaw. They had us blocked off from the front to the back, and they were putting them in the wagon like potato sack. It was rocking. It was rocking. All right, friends, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. Uh, you can find it on Spotify. All you have to do is search Stream Police. Every month we add five more songs. This is, after all, a living, breathing document. And in honor of Valentine's Day, these are all songs with Valentine in the title. Are you ready? Here we go. First, it's Valentine's Day by Bruce Springsteen. Driving Big lazy car rushing up the highway in the dark. I got one hand steady on the wheel, one hand's trembling over my heart. And it's pounding, baby, like it's gonna bust right on through. And it ain't gonna stop till I'm alone again with you. Then Valentine by Nils Lofgren. So let your blue heart open wide. Let's never leave our dreams behind. It will comfort and restore my life. If you let me be your Valentine. Our differences are part of Next, it's Blue Valentines by Tom Waits. Blue Valentines, like half-forgotten dreams, like a pebble in my shoe as I walk these streets and the ghost of your memory. The burglar that can break Rose's neck Then, Valentine's Day. No, not a cover of the Bruce song. This is a totally different tune by Steve Earle. I ain't got a card to sign Roses have been hard to find only hope that you'll be mine on Valentine's Day. I knew it, I swore that I wouldn't forget. I wrote it all down. I lost it. There's so much I want to say But all the words just slip away The way you love me every day 
Valentine's Day. And finally, it's Happy Valentine's Day by Outcast. I don't think y'all heard, man. I just want to say Happy Valentine's Day. Can y'all dig that? Now, when arrows don't penetrate, see. He shoots straight for your heart Now, and he won't miss you But that's alright, y'all won't believe in me anyway, but You won't believe in me, but you would That's it. Thank you so much. Go listen to some Louis Jordan albums. Take care of yourselves. Peace. All right, let's get back to the movies. So... Um, like I said, watched a bunch of movies. I watched four movies that were nominated for Best Picture this year in the last month. I already told you about Joker. Um, I, I talked about The Irishman in the last episode. I watched that um, last month. That is, or, or two months ago, I should say. That movie's also up for Best Picture. I gave you my thoughts on it. I don't think that's Best Picture material either. I, I really did enjoy it. I had a lot of fun watching all three and a half hours of it. I had no problem with the length. Um, in fact, I wanted it to kind of go on longer. And it just was a fun watch, and it was one of those that I really enjoyed, and I think I'll go back and watch again for sure, despite how long it is. Uh, Because great Scorsese movies, they never get old. They're just ones that are timeless, and you you love going back to them. That's how I feel about Casino. It's how I feel about Goodfellas. It's how I feel about most of his great movies. Um, Bringing Out the Dead. You know, just the, the list goes on and on with him, man. I already talked a lot about King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. Those are two of the best as well. So... I watched that one. I also watched Marriage Story on Netflix. And I don't want to go into a full-blown review on that. I just want to say Marriage Story to me didn't feel like a Best Picture nominee, if I'm being 100% honest with you. It, it wasn't that good. I thought it was kind of uh, self-indulgent as far as um, the, the writer-director Noah Baumbach goes. And also Adam Driver, who I do find to be kind of a self-indulgent actor sometimes he I guess his part was a lot based on his own life and I guess the the story of the marriage was based a lot on Bombax's own marriage and so it just it wasn't that interesting and it was kind of self-indulgent a little bit to me kind of felt like a little bit of an exercise in masturbation if I'm being honest with you so I didn't love Marriage Story. I wasn't blown away by it. I thought Scarlett Johansson was fantastic in it. I do think she deserved to be nominated for an Oscar. I thought Laura Dern was great in it. She's, I think she's up for an Oscar, too. Definitely deserving there. They were both really good. Adam Driver, I just don't connect with him. He's just not one of those actors that I have found to love yet. He's just not one of my favorites in anything I've seen him in yet. I haven't found that performance of his that's blown me away. I, I thought he was really good in Star Wars. Um... But he's just one of those, I think he's just one of those brooding guys. That's just kind of, he just broods. It's basically what he does. He showed a little bit more life in Marriage Story, so I'll give him credit for that. Uh, But I just didn't, I didn't like his character. 
Uh, I thought he was, you know, uh, basically a big jerk off. And the movie itself was just fine. But again, I don't think this is a best picture nominated or even winning kind of movie. I guess it was basically like Kramer versus Kramer, right? If I was going to draw uh, a tie with another best picture winner from the past, it kind of seemed like it was Kramer versus Kramer for the 2010s and 2020s. So those are my just real brief thoughts on Marriage Story. That is streaming for you now on Netflix. Certainly, again, not a bad movie, but it's it's not best picture caliber to me. Just a, just a fine movie. Just one of those movies that if I watched and I didn't know it was nominated for best picture, I'd be like, yeah, that was good. Good acting, you know, but nothing too profound. I don't know. Maybe it's because I lived through a divorce myself as a kid. I was close to the age of the kid in that movie, and I know what it's like, and... uh I don't know. So maybe it was too personal, but I just thought the movie was not relatable and also um, kind of grating at times, if I'm being honest with you. But let me get to a movie made by the woman who Noah Baumbach, the director of Marriage Story, is in a relationship with now. And I think they have a, a kid together. Anyway, Greta Gerwig, the fantastic uh, director and writer behind Lady Bird, has come back now with a movie called Little Women, which is based, of course, on the classic uh, novel. And it's been made into a movie time and time again. But Greta Gerwig found a way to inject new life into this story and make it, again, an essential story for a new generation of people. Not just women, but people. But especially, I think, women. I think this movie is a celebration of sisterhood, a celebration of family. Um, It's also a celebration of being a woman and being independent. And I think it's uh, got a lot of meaningful things to say about life in a world where, you know, back in the 1800s, women weren't free to do a lot of the things they are free to do now. But women still today aren't free to do a lot of the things that men are able to do. So there's a lot to be taken from this movie. And I think it is one that I'm glad they did again, even though we've seen this movie before. We've heard this story before and we've seen a good movie of Little Women before. It came out back in the 90s uh, with Winona Ryder. It had a great cast all the way from top to bottom. And that movie was actually nominated for Best Picture as well. And that one was good. But this one was different. And I think Greta Gerwig definitely made this movie her own. She changed some things about the story, which I don't know how big lovers of the book itself are going to feel about those changes, but I have no problem with it. I mean, we're talking about a very old book at this point. We're talking about a novel that we've all seen done before or read before. So doing some new things with it, and it wasn't anything drastic. Uh, She kept the setting the same. She kept the characters the same. She just changed a couple things that happened along the way, especially in regards to the Joe character, uh, who is played by Saoirse Ronan in the new movie. But man, let me just... Little Women, this... I had so much fun watching this movie. This was probably the most fun I had watching any movie in all of 2019 um, that came out last year. It's just, it was so full of life and love just bleeds out of every frame. And that's the thing that I really liked about this. Whereas Lady Bird, which was another movie I raved about when it came out, Lady Bird felt kind of heavy. You know what I'm saying? Like it was a really funny movie, but it was also, it was a teen movie. So it had all those teenage kind of hormones and emotions and all that drama that feels so big when you're living in it, but really isn't at the end of the day. But Little Women is just full of love and life, even though it follows young women as well. But the women in this movie, I'd say, are maybe a little bit more mature than uh, 
the character in Lady Bird. Uh, but man, the cast is stellar for this film from top to bottom. She did such a good job casting this movie. Uh, Saoirse Ronan, right at the top. Florence Pugh, who's quickly become one of my favorite actors after her work in Midsummer, and now her work in the... She blew me away in Little Women. I thought Florence Pugh was so good in this movie. Uh, deserving of an Oscar nomination, if not win, for her work in this film. Um, also, you had Emma Watson, of course, you had, once again, Laura Dern, who is just all over the place now and is kind of finally getting the recognition that she's always deserved. Laura Dern has always been a great actor. Just go back to Blue Velvet when she was just basically a kid. And she was just this great blue-eyed, you know, big-eyed, naive, small-town cheerleader girl in that movie who gets introduced to all these dark things. And she was so great in that movie. Um, and what a challenging role and a challenging guy to work with in David Lynch. Uh, but she did great. She was great in Jurassic Park. I mean, who could forget her in that movie? And she's just, she's had a, a wonderful career. So I'm glad Laura Dern's kind of finally getting some major credit. But she's really good in this movie. You got uh, Timothy Chalamet is also uh, in this movie. He was back, he was in Lady Bird as well. Comes back in this one, does a great job once again. Uh, he's a guy that, uh, I have connected with in his performances, whether it was in this or in um, Call Me By Your Name, which I thought he was phenomenal in. Uh, he's a guy that I, I have kind of instantly connected with, and I think he's one of those really kind of soulful actors. Puts a lot of love and soul into his performances, and I really buy him uh, in everything that I've seen him in. But the cast of Little Women, just incredible. Every scene, Meryl Streep's in it too. Every scene, top to bottom, you're just seeing uh, great actors. Chris Cooper, almost forgot to mention him. Man, he he plays like such a gentle, kind guy in this movie, which was so weird because you think of Chris Cooper, I usually think of, like I always think of him in American Beauty and in Adaptation where he just plays these really intense guys. And he, there's an intensity in his face that just comes natural. Uh, but in this movie, he's so soft and gentle and nice, and I just kept waiting for him to kind of be a bad guy, and it never happened, thankfully. So uh, really cool to see him play a part like that. But it's just a wonderful cast, and this you can tell that Gerwig loves this story, loves these characters, loves this book, um, and she just had a ton of fun playing in it and making a new version of it that feels all her own. This this film feels like a completely new fresh take on what is very old and well-worn source material. So Little Women to me is a movie that if it won Best Picture, I would not call a disappointment and I would not say is one of those let down movies um, or one of those just okay movies because I would call this a truly great movie. It, it, it just from the first the opening moments where the music comes in and it's got this great score from start to finish. Uh, it's just, you feel it. It's just alive. The whole movie's kinetic, and it just feels fun to watch and spend time with, and you just enjoy being in this world, and you really don't want it to end. I mean, it's almost like I wanted it to be a miniseries where it's 10 hours long, because I just want to keep hanging out with all these great actors, and I just want to see what's going to happen. But I do have to say my favorite sister of all the little women was Amy, so you can call me crazy there. Maybe it's just because Florence Pugh was so good, but I thought Amy was really a, a great character. I thought she was... Um, very smart, didn't get enough credit, uh, a lot of fun to hang out with. She's the one I think I would like to spend some time with, honestly, out of all of them. So uh, I really, I just enjoyed all the performances, though, from start to finish, all the characters. I can see why Little Women is such a beloved book that keeps being made over and over. Every generation, somebody makes a version of this movie, and we're talking, we're going back a long time in the history of cinema 
uh, to the first versions of Little Women that have been brought to the screen. But this is the first time, you know, I mean, it's been directed by a woman, written by a woman, uh, based on a book by a woman. So this is a really great piece of feminist filmmaking um, that is accessible to anyone, even if you're not, you don't consider yourself a feminist. This is just a really cool movie to watch. Very fun. Made by a freaking expert craftsman. Greta Gerwig is a great director. If you've seen her movie, you already could see it in Lady Bird, but in Little Women, she has cemented herself truly as one of the great directors working right now because she just has such control over every scene. You just feel it. You know she is in control. Nothing ever feels like it's going to you know, bust loose or uh, go off the rails. She's got every performance in her hand, and she's directing it all the way. So th- this is truly when she didn't get nominated for Best Director and people got mad, I was kind of like, well, maybe... Maybe the directing wasn't that great. Like, maybe she did just, like, just because a woman directs a movie, I don't think she should be nominated for Best Director. It's just like, just because a black director makes a movie doesn't mean they should automatically be nominated for for Best Director. I mean, it shouldn't go that way or else it's going to be cheap. And I think the artists would agree with that. But after seeing Little Women, I definitely think she should have been nominated for Best Director because what she did here was truly fresh and original versus a guy like Todd Phillips, who was nominated, who just basically did stuff that's already been done. So I think uh, Gerwig should have definitely been nominated over him. Um, And I would have put her in the mix and I could have seen her probably winning it, honestly, because it's a really well-made movie. This, this film is just well crafted, well-made, well-acted. It's just a great piece of cinema, a lot of fun to watch. I really enjoyed spending my time with little women. And if you want to see it, it's in theaters. Now it's about to come out uh, on home media, however you like to watch it, but give give it some time. Spend some time with Little Women. You will have a lot of fun watching this movie. Really cool film, uh, and I'm glad that I sat down and saw it. So if it won Best Picture, I wouldn't be disappointed, but it's not my pick for Best Picture at this year's Oscars. We'll get to that in just a minute. I just, I just feel, I just feel like women, they, they have minds. And they have souls, as well as just hearts. And they've got ambition, and they've got talent, as well as just beauty. And I'm so sick of people saying that that love is just all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. But I'm, I'm so lonely. So as I told you, I love Little Women. After seeing it, it was my leader in the clubhouse. I was like, that's the best picture. That's the one I would vote for of the movies I've seen. Now, I haven't seen 1917 yet. And that's one of the front runners. But I don't, I don't really think 1917 is going to win because if you look at Oscars history recently, war movies do not do well. I mean, the last real war movie to win Best Picture was Platoon. That was like 30 years ago. And Saving Private Ryan, which is arguably you know the best war movie of modern day, did not win Best Picture. It famously got beat. So I think, uh, I think 1917 is going to have a hard time. War movies are just kind of divisive they're not for everybody and uh, they don't win the awards like they used to um, and epics don't really do that well you know so at the Oscars anymore they used to kind of always dominate but they just don't really do that well anymore uh, they kind of like smaller movies now so I wouldn't I'd be surprised honestly if 1917 wins but I know it's kind of the front runner for a lot of people but my pick for what should win best picture this year is a movie that came out of south korea and it is parasite i watched it the day after i saw little women and immediately i was like okay well now i've got a new leader in the clubhouse because this 
is truly a powerhouse and incredible movie that I think will be remembered for decades to come. The storyline is something that's immediate, that resonates with all of us because we've all had economic troubles, we've all had problems finding work, we've all had problems keeping a steady living situation going. Um, and this movie is kind of all about that, but it does it in such this like black comedy, very dark, very tense way. And what Parasite is about, and this is directed by Bong Joon-ho, who is already one of the best directors working. He's a South Korean director. He's done a few English language features. He did uh, the movie Snowpiercer, which a lot of people loved. I have not seen that one yet, but his Korean movies, I really like. The Host, which was this really good monster movie that he made in the 2000s. Uh, a movie called Mother, which I think I talked about in the last episode, which I was blown away by. Fantastic movie. Um, so he's done some really good movies already but parasite is probably his masterpiece and what this movie is about it takes place in south korea and it's about this poor family that scrapes by on whatever they can do they live in a, a like a sub basement apartment which has a partial view above ground and like kind of a but they live underground so they can just see a little bit it's like living in a basement and you have a window way up high but all but their window just looks into an alley so their view is like people drunk people peeing outside of bars like right by their window uh, every night so they have a pretty miserable little existence but the family's close-knit and they are a bunch of basically con artists uh, is kind of how they get by and what happens is uh, the son of the family it's a four-person family there's a mother uh, there's a mother a father a son and a daughter the son and daughter are teenagers and older teenagers and what happens is the son ends up getting a job tutoring English to a rich family. And the rich family is kind of presented as basically morons, especially the mom of the family. She's just not really that smart, very naive, has lived a very sheltered existence versus this family who has kind of seen the roughest that the world can offer. So he gets a job there as a tutor. He's getting paid a lot of money. And he finds a way to get his entire family into this family's home working in different ways. His father was a driver for years, so he gets their chauffeur fired and gets his father in, but doesn't tell them that he's his father. You know what I mean? He, he pre presents it like this guy's a stranger to me. He gets his sister in working as an art tutor because she does art in her spare time, and she's teaching the son of that rich family art, and the mom buys it all that she's this great artist because they forge paperwork and stuff like that to make themselves look good. And again, he doesn't present it like I'm related to her it's just this this artist that I know and I've met before and then their mother ends up getting a job there as the housekeeper um, and, and cooking meals and stuff like that so the whole family ends up moving basically into this rich people's this mansion in South Korea and working there for that family but they're not you know the the family doesn't know that these people are all related to each other they think they just are their employees now so it's this really interesting dynamic between classes tons of class warfare stuff going on here uh your loyalties will be pulled apart every second who do you root for what are you hoping happens in the end and it is just a, a blast to watch man i'm telling you and it's so tense in parts the switch flips uh in a hurry between comedy and drama in this movie um, and really never goes back so it gets pretty serious at a point and but the whole theater that i saw it in was laughing for most of the movie, especially in the like the first hour, you're just cracking up because it's just it's very frank and funny about what people will do to make money. And um, this family of scammers, I mean, you can't help but like them because they're just charming and they seem like a nice family, like they really get along with each other and love each other. But they're assholes at the end of the day, and they're you know they're grifters. So 
how do you root for them? You know what I mean? Should you feel for this rich family or do you hate them just because they're rich? And you can't because they're nice too. So it's, there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on in this movie. And Bong Joon-ho just creates this, this palette of characters that is so unforgettable and this, um, this story that's so memorable and so fresh and so immediate for these times, I think, uh, that I just loved Parasite from start to finish. I thought the acting from top to bottom was phenomenal. And it's a shame that none of the actors got nominated for Oscars in this movie because there are a couple that I think definitely should have. First off, the woman who played the daughter of the family, the poor family, Park So Dam is her name. She definitely should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress because she is so good in this movie. It's one of the best performances you'll see from any actor regardless of gender this year also the mother of the poor family uh, her name is Chang Hai Jin and I could have seen her being nominated she's very good she's she's dark and, and kind of mean but also just a, a really strong character uh, again from start to finish and the woman who played the rich family's mother Cho Yo Jong really really good uh, performance from her too the men are really good in the movie too but I thought the women just uh, stole the show in Parasite. I was just blown away by all of them. So it's disappointing that they didn't get nominated for Oscars. It's weird for the director, for Bong Joon-ho to be nominated for Best Director, but for none of his actors to be nominated, that doesn't really translate to a Best Director Oscar to me. So it's weird. But you know, the Oscars, they, they got to give it to actors that people know, and they don't want to give it to foreign language actors usually. And it's just, it's so stupid. So it's a shame because these actors probably should have definitely been Oscar nominated, but they weren't. And it sucks because it's probably a once-in-a-lifetime kind of deal for them um, to get this kind of Western acclaim, you know what I'm saying, in Hollywood. Uh, but th this movie definitely deserves all the accolades it's been getting. And if it wins Best Picture, I think it'll be a great move for the Oscars to give it to a foreign language film finally because there have been many years where the foreign language film winner at the Oscars was better than the Best Picture winner. But it's never won Best Picture, and it's only been nominated like four or five times, I think, ever, a foreign language movie. So for this one to win, I think it would be historic. I think it would be a great precedent, and uh, I think it would be a great confidence booster for foreign language filmmakers, but they don't need the approval of the Oscars to make great movies. They've been doing it for as long as cinema has been around. So, But Bong Joon-ho did an amazing job here, and he's already had a great career as a director. So if he wins it, Best Director, I'd be thrilled for him. I think this movie, if it wins Best Picture, would be the best pick for Best Picture. But again, I haven't seen them all. Haven't seen 1917. Haven't seen Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit. So there are a few that I haven't seen. Uh, I already raved about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a few episodes ago. I told you that I loved that. I wouldn't be surprised to see that win Best Picture either. A Tarantino movie's never won it. This was like a love letter to old Hollywood where a lot of these voters lived in and, and, and loved themselves. So I wouldn't be disappointed if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood won. Wouldn't be disappointed if Little Women won, and I wouldn't be disappointed if Parasite won. So those would be my three kind of top choices for Best Picture this year. But Parasite's stellar. It's uh, still in theaters now. It's going to be coming to home uh, media really soon. So give it a watch. If you're Even if you're not into foreign movies, maybe this will be the movie that gets you into foreign films. Um, as I heard somebody say at the theater when we were there, I heard uh, a, a young woman said and when we were leaving, I overheard her talking to her friend. She said, like an hour into it, I forgot that I was reading uh, the subtitles. And that's what happens when you're watching a great foreign movie. You don't even think about it. It's just second nature. So Parasite, see it. No matter what you need to do, just see this movie because it's fantastic.
All right, so the best thing I watched this month. Parasite was amazing. It probably was the best thing I watched this month, but I want to pick something else because I don't want to just keep raving about Parasite. The best thing I watched at home this month was from 1946. It was the Best Picture winner from 1947, and it is called The Best Years of Our Lives. Amazing movie directed by William Wyler, uh, who had just a huge career behind the camera. One of the great old studio directors of his day. He, of course, did Ben-Hur, which won more Oscars than any movie in history, is still tied for that record. Uh, but anyway, this movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, won seven Oscars, so it had a huge haul, including, like I said, Best Picture. Uh, and the cast included icons like Frederick March, Myrna Loy, Dana Andrews, Virginia Mayo, uh, especially Frederick March and Myrna Loy, though. Just a absolute clinic they put on in acting in this movie. So what The Best Years of Our Lives is about, it is a an epic three-hour character study, which is rare for a three-hour movie to be, but it is. Set in present day at that time, 1946, it's about three you know, U.S. soldiers who come home from World War II and have different demons they're battling themselves, some physical, some mental. Uh, one of the guys has lost both of his hands, and he was played by an actor who was a first-time actor who was a veteran who lost both of his hands and wore hooks uh, in place of hands. So he can do all these kind of neat tricks with them because he's really wearing them in real life. Um, and he gives a great performance too. But the best years of our lives is this really great look at... Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder all the way back in 1946 and how tough it is to readjust to civilian life when you've spent years abroad and when you've spent years in that military environment and around military people only. So it's tough for these guys to come back home to this small town that they live in. Uh, it's kind of like a small city that they live in. Um, and I just was blown away by this movie. I think it felt so fresh. It still felt so necessary and it still felt so good just great acting from start to finish great writing um and just an immediate movie i really liked it a lot the best years of our lives from 1946 seek this one out if you're into old cinema it's black and white um and, and give it a watch because if any of that what i'm describing sounds good to you you really should watch this it's one of the the great movies about the difficulties that soldiers face when they come home and i think it was a groundbreaker for its day so it's really cool that it won best picture back then all right, some really good movies now streaming uh, before I send you out the door. On Netflix and Amazon, I always like to recommend a couple things for you. Something funny and something serious usually, but on Netflix, I'm not going to give you anything funny this time because they have too many great dramas now streaming on Netflix. Netflix has been bumping its movie game up big time the last few months. I used to rip Netflix all the time for not putting a lot of great movies on their streaming service anymore, uh, but they have been getting back into doing that. And... For three, I'm going to give you three dramas to watch on Netflix. First off, The Pianist, maybe the best Holocaust fictional drama ever done, set in the Holocaust. I'm telling you, it's a it's an amazing movie. It's, it's better than Schindler's List, if you ask me. And I had a professor, uh, I took a, a class on Holocaust cinema that was taught um, by a Jewish professor who, uh, he's a rabbi actually, and he wasn't a Holocaust survivor, he wasn't old enough for that. But he's a great, he studied it a lot, and he's seen a lot of these movies, and he was a, a great professor for this class. But he said that he thought The Pianist was the most accurate representation from the survivors he's talked to. He thought it was the best representation in fictional Hollywood drama that they have ever done of the Holocaust. He wasn't a big fan of Schindler's List. He didn't like that movie very much. But The Pianist is really good. It's Roman Polanski. It's, it's just an intense uh, drama about a guy trying to survive the ultimate nightmare in human history. 
Uh, also on Netflix right now, Blade Runner, one of my very favorite movies, never gets old, sci-fi classic from the 80s, still, uh, you know, just looks great, feels great, mysterious storyline, awesome ending, Harrison Ford at his best. Uh, it's a fantastic film. The sequel was really good too, Blade Runner 2049, but the original's on Netflix now and I couldn't recommend it more. If you've never sat down with Blade Runner, give it a watch, man. Ridley Scott, just totally at the height of his powers at that point, making this great noir sci-fi movie if you like the old noir detective movies you'll really like blade runner i'm talking to you andy because i know you love those movies and also streaming on netflix maybe my favorite movie of all time i do not say that lightly if you ask anyone who knows me it's been my favorite movie for decades going back to the first time i ever saw it magnolia from 1999 i this movie gives me makes my hair on my arm stand up every time i watch it it turned me into the true lover of cinema that i am now uh it's the movie that really got me just so inspired by auteur directors and by what a director who's just given creative free reign can do that's paul thomas anderson in this case is it self uh indulgent sure it is but man the performances in this movie are great tom cruise gives a show-stopping performance philip seymour hoffman julianne moore william h macy john c Riley. uh it's just an amazing jason robards in his last great performance so Magnolia is is truly special movie to me. Probably my favorite movie ever made. So that is on Netflix now. Couldn't recommend it to you anymore. And on Amazon for you, something funny from 2001. It's Bridget Jones's Diary. This is streaming now on Amazon Prime. Very funny movie. It shows you how great of an actor Renee Zellweger is. Uh, I mean, this is a girl from Texas. If you've ever heard her talk, thick Texas accent, doing a really good British accent. Uh, good enough that British people actually really liked this series of movies. She did three of them, and they grossed high, and people bought her. So uh, I thought uh, Bridget Jones's Diary was really funny um, and a really kind of uh, fresh, R-rated, romantic kind of comedy thing following a, a woman lead who is far from a perfect character. So it was kind of ahead of its time, and I think it's a really good movie still today. So it's uh, now streaming on Amazon, Bridget Jones's Diary. Something serious for you. I'm going to give you 1995's A Little Princess. This was a movie made for kids by a master director who was just getting started out, Alfonso Cuaron, who has become one of the top directors in Hollywood now. But man, A Little Princess is a beautifully made movie. You feel a lot when you watch it. It's a great story. Um... And you can just, again, tell you're in the hands of a great director. So at the start of kind of his greatness. So 1995's A Little Princess. If you never watched it, it's now for you on Amazon. And it's pretty serious, man. It's not a very fun little kid's movie. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thanks for hanging out, my friend. We'll talk to you again in a month. If you want to reach out to me, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis, M-R Clint Davis. Hit me on uh, uh, email at theclintdavis at gmail.com. Hit Andy up at sedlackjournal at gmail.com. And we'll see you again next month, my friend. Uh, Thank you very much for hanging out. Until then, stream on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.